What's going on, Battleship Pretension listeners? My name is Gus. I am a longtime listener myself and a web developer based in DC. And I'm sponsoring this episode so I can tell you about a little app with a giant heart called Fantasy Oscars. You can find it at fantasyoscars.co. It's a little bit of a fun side project I've been working on year by year. Totally free, lets you create a ballot to predict winners. And then you can also create leagues so that you can score your ballot against your friends. I actually put together a special league for Battleship Retention listeners, which you can join by going to fantasyoscars.co slash BP. All around, it's just meant to be an extra bit of fun around the show. You can use it to score the ballot contest at your Oscar party. If you're going to be watching with family, maybe in different states, I find it provides a little extra layer of connection. Um, same thing if you're just having a chill night in by yourself during the show. So I hope to see you at fantasyoscars.co. Enjoy the show. Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Scott Nye. I am David Bax. Uh, Tyler Smith uh, is still not here. You might have heard, heard him on the Movie Journal a couple of weeks ago. Uh, hopefully we'll be doing more of those or some regular episodes or something um, very soon in the coming weeks. Uh, but Tyler is still um, uh, in a hospital and a care facility. He's making, as he talked about uh, on the Movie Journal, he is, he is making... Uh, slow progress, but we're all very hopeful. Uh, as are the people who should know his his doctors. So that's uh, that's positive, but that doesn't mean it has stopped being uh, crazy fucking expensive because that's the uh, American way. So uh, <laughs> if you could uh, uh, be so kind as to check out the GoFundMe, which you will find pinned to the top, you'll find a post about it pinned to the top of the homepage at battleshippretension.com. That would that would really help um uh or or like or like tyler said uh, a couple episodes ago subscribe to the patreon patreon.com slash battleship retention that's a way to help tyler um monetarily and to uh get some extra content that's all this is Hell right? yeah. content that's all we're doing here just we're just turning out content. for people just to put in their ears and block out the pain of potential death yeah know? uh the agony of existence Yep, that's what podcasts are for. Yeah, uh, that's why filling the empty them. space so you don't have yeah. to listen to your thoughts. Yeah, I've always been like that too, though. Like, I always want something. I don't like. I don't do well with silence. You know, yeah, it used to be just music. What's that? Before podcasts, I'd just be like, "Oh, just throw on some music, throw on something." Yeah, but that's like my um, my old roommate Cole. Uh, Cole Pasek, the composer of Battleship Pretension's chilling theme music, he would get like annoyed with me because we'd like, I'd come home from like work or school and immediately just like hit play on a CD or or a record. I'd get up in the morning and like make breakfast and immediately just start playing music. And and he was like, "You don't like silence, do you?" And I was like, "I do not." <laughs> um, but uh, anyway. Um, I cannot find a transition into the thing we were going to talk about. Uh, but well, um, you know what else helps you keep the silence out is going to the movies. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, a beloved way of going to the movies from 2017 is back. Hell yeah! I think it was. I think yeah. I was trying to remember the timeline. I feel like it was came into play in late 2017, 
and then was a consistent presence through most of 2018. What year? I'm trying to think of movies that I know I saw. Right. Movie Pass. Florida Project. 2018. I think that was 2017. That's what I'm saying. I think it came out at the end of 17. Okay. Or maybe it was like a late summer thing into fall. Because, yeah, yeah, I remember like some people, because the Vista played Phantom Thread on 35 for like two months or something. And so I know a ton of people were just like going all the time to see Phantom Thread. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was definitely using it a lot in 2017 because I'm thinking about the movies I saw. It was Florida Project and Faces Places. Um, trying to think what else. I also saw there was like an HR Geiger, HR Geiger documentary, um, that I saw at the Downtown Independent. May it rest hmm. in peace. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but Movie Pass is back. I've signed up, but I haven't used it yet. Um, oh, really? Well, so because you got your card. Uh, yeah, but I've also the only times I've gone. To uh, you, listeners of the of the Patreon again, patreon.com slash battleship pretension might remember that one of my new year's resolutions was to go to more movies as like a just a customer of the movie, you know, just a, a, a yeah. patron of the movies as opposed to just like relying on uh, you know, press screenings and the like, um, the largesse of the studios, exactly. Um, so I have been going to the movies, but I've been going so far, I didn't plan it this way, but like exclusively to Lemley's, and I already have the Lemley premiere card. You know what I yeah. mean? I guess if you already so, paid into that, then you want to get your money's worth. But um, I mean, yeah, either yeah. way, you're still saving Once money some, if you use the movie pass. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. But um, so, yeah, I have signed up, but I haven't used it yet. You have used it. What's the experience like? Uh, seamless. Couldn't be easier. 100% uh, win rate. I think I've only gone twice, though, now that I think about it. I thought I'd gone three times. Um, but I think so far I've only done it for Knock at the Cabin and Magic Mike. Magic Mike's Last Dance, rather. Um, and yeah, so Magic far... Mike 3. Sure, yeah, as it's known. Um, I think I, I have been, as I already were, like, digressing, but I've taken to doing that with sequels, just, like, referring to them as whatever number they are. It just streamlines everything. I guess, but then I have to remember what number they are. I mean, for Magic Mike, it's easy. There's only three. But whenever I'm talking about, like, the different Transformers movies, I know them, but there's a part that I, like, catches in my mind, like, which number right. was that? Yeah, I guess that, I guess that makes sense. Um, definitely for Die Hard, I always flip the, the fourth and fifth ones. Um, oh well, that's easy for me because I never saw them. So, uh, <laughs> so you just have no reason to ever discuss them. As yeah, really, it's, it's like it was same with that. I guess that the classic example is that fourth Indiana Jones movie. I never saw it. I tend to right. forget that it hap- happened. Um, I know it's called Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, right? Correct. And Dan Aykroyd's vodka is called Crystal Head Vodka. Correct. But I tend to want to say Crystal Skull Vodka, I think, because of the Indiana Jones movie. Well, at least you're not getting it the other way around. I think Indiana Jones is on the hunt for good vodka, (laughs) or probably pretty terrible vodka. Um, I bet Indiana Jones knows where to get good vodka. Yeah, and he wouldn't buy from Dan Aykroyd. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the movie pass thing works differently than it used to. You can buy into different tiers... And each tier gives you a certain number of points, and those points have can be used essentially differently by city. So, like in LA, a movie costs more points than if I were going to go up in Portland and use it there. Um, but essentially, yeah. the tier I'm on is is thirty bucks a month, and I can basically, you know, unless I only go to the movies on the weekends or something, if I'm going to a movie on the weeknight, which is usually what I do. Um, I can see about seven movies a month with it. So that works out to like, you know, three, four bucks per movie, uh, somewhere in that range. Yeah, it's not pretty, bad. 
pretty good. Um, I don't know that I will use it often enough to really justify it, but I figure as long as I use it three times a month or so, I'm getting my money's worth and at least it's, you know, breaking even as it were. Although for that matter, the two movies I did see it with cost more than $10 a piece. They were like 12 and 14. So I'm already, you know, only six bucks in the hole so far. Um, nice. So yeah, I, I'm very excited that it's back. I know everyone was all skeptical and I'm, well, especially because you know, when they announced that thing about how you were going to have to like watch ads to unlock points. Yeah, or that didn't really seem to take. I certainly have not been presented with any advertisements. Um, and, you know, people always talk about, well, they're selling your information. Man, everyone's selling my information. I my information is out there for the it highest is out there, Yeah, Anyone can have it right in Davey at Battleship dot com and he'll sell you my information. <laughs> um, Davey is my twitter handle it's david at battleship retention.com okay that, well, the, the email is more formal although i recently as you might know yeah. i missed a bunch of emails yes that was very weird did you figure that out yes so what happened is one of the emails that were missing was missing were going to david at battleship retention.com which i have set up to forward directly to my gmail and right. have had have done so since the beginning yeah so what had never occurred to me is that there is still a battleshipretention.com like email inbox. Sure. That I never check. Because everything gets <laughs> full. full. So yeah, it like just because I open and delete an email in my Gmail, yeah. it remains. So basically I had never ever opened or deleted an email. <laughs> I had like 150,000 emails. <laughs> and I guess Gmail has Gmail has a limit like where it will stop forwarding. Um it's yeah. like that's too much to check. So I literally just went in there it took a while to do. I went to the battleship sure. in the battleship retention thing just to like select all, delete all, and then it was like a little counter. Is it deleted for like twelve minutes? <laughs> That's pretty satisfying, though. Um, it's strange that there's no bounce back. I feel like uh, email should give a bounce back. You know, like the same way you call somebody, and their voice box is full. You get well, that's, a little message. The it's like they it, can't take it. It wasn't. It wasn't the battleshipretention.com email address was full. Mm. It was that. Gmail, I guess, at a certain point, it takes too much to check an email oh, box that's that full. Okay, so the emails that. were still going through to battleshipretention.com. They just weren't getting forwarded to my Gmail. And every time I was like, what's going on? Every time I would try to resync it, it wouldn't work. Yeah. And I eventually realized, oh, it's because it's too it's too big an email inbox. I had to get so I had to first I had I had to like luckily I have notes as to how to access my battleship retention email address, yeah. which I probably haven't done since 2010. Maybe 2011. <laughs> you, uh, you work in corporate America. Do you have multiple email addresses associated with your work? And some of them you just do not check ever. Um, I have two, but that's going away. They're going to be consolidated soon, but um, my work uses outlook. And so I, in my left, like mm. bar I have, I can see both inboxes. So if I, I'm mostly on the one that most of my emails come to, but if I get another one, which is usually like internal corporate stuff that comes to my other one, I can see that I have one and I'll check it. But yeah, it's just yeah. two and they are consolidating them. They haven't given a date, but soon. We're consolidating this weekend. It's going to be an adventure. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Um, they also, this is like way off topic and just talking about my work, but they've also said that once consolidated, the amount of email that you're allowed to have, like, is going to go way down to only like a couple gigs that you're allowed to have. Oh, dang. And uh, yeah, cause I like, 
am paranoid that I'm going to need everything. So I never, yeah. I almost never delete anything in my email. Same. Um, it saved which, me many times. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But now I'm going to have to figure out how to like say, okay, I hope this is like, I hope this information is preserved somewhere uh, and, and delete, e- delete emails, which I am not good at doing. Uh, anyway, yeah, I love, is... I love having the receipts of like, uh, well, according to this email from October, uh, 2021, yeah. like, yeah, I love that. That shit pays off. Yeah. Um, you don't stay in this game by slacking, you know? Um, the point is that movie pass is back. It's working very well. I'm not here to sell you on anything. I'm just saying for any listeners who are nervous, that it was going to be buggy like it used to be anything like that. It's working. Okay. So far. Uh, yeah. And hopefully it's not as my wife always references the time when the only movie you could see was the Meg. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like at the end, the end of, of movie pass, that's always a reference of like, when I was saying, like I signed up, she was like, are you going to be able to see more movies than just the Meg? Yeah. Right now it's pretty wide open. You can go, even if they don't like, it, the new Beverly's on there and they don't always have the movie that's playing that night listed on there, but you just click like there's some like general admission button that you okay. click. Uh, I haven't tried that sort of thing yet, but uh, it seems like, yeah, well, they don't do like 3d and they don't do like an IMAX thing. So for those who are really oh. dedicated to their AMC, a list and uh, demand to see movies at AMC, uh, God knows why, then uh, you, you still have the advantage there. But um Otherwise, any regular 2D ordinary screen movie, mm-hmm. you're good to go. Uh, well, before we move into the topic, which I'm very excited about, one of my favorite episodes of the year, uh, I'm going to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, I use them each and every day. Tyler used to, but he doesn't, you know, he's got his own private room at the place. He doesn't need to. He can crank it. Yeah, he can listen to whatever he wants as loud as he wants. Um, today, speaking of things that are back, Movie Pass is back. You know what else is back? No. Uh, sh- well, and has been for a few years, but um, I'm old and only really starting to take notice. Uh, shoegaze as a genre of rock music is really? is is back in a in a big way. And today, I was listening to the brand new album from the South Korean artist who goes by the name Paranoil. P-A-R-A-N-N-O-U-L. Uh, he's a one-man musician, but he records like full band albums of really uh, beautiful and sometimes m- quite melodic uh, shoegaze, um, sometimes leaning a little bit towards the heavier side, but mostly uh, it's very melodic stuff. And the newest album, which is his third Although I never watched his fr- watched, I'm such a movie guy. <laughs> I never listened to his first album, which is called "Let's Walk on the Path of a Blue Cat." Good name. That's so I first name. heard of him with 2021's album "To See the Next Part of the Dream," and then the new album that just came out uh, at the end of January, I think, is called "After the Magic." That's the one I was listening to today, yesterday, and today. Actually, I've been listening to it a lot. Uh, sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code Pretension. At checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please, please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Scott, we're back. Let's get into it, shall we? Absolutely. This is the penultimate episode. Well, is it the penultimate episode or is it the quarterfinal? Uh, (laughs) 
is the because I, I think of our top 10 next week as the like crescendo the climax but then we do or you will do uh uh an oscars reaction episode does that yeah. I'm going to say the end of the year stuff. I'm going to say the top 10 episode is the crescendo or the ultimate or however you want to phrase it. And then the Oscars episode is like the hangover after party scene. Yeah. Because by then even the Oscars are over and we're just all like, you know, just kind of hanging out, shooting the shit. There's no, there's no build. There's no, it's not really concluding anything. It's like an afterword in a book. Okay. Yeah. So this is, I'm going to call this the penultimate episode of our, of our, uh, look back at the, at the previous year, this, in this case, 2022. Uh, and this is an episode Tyler came up with it years ago. It is one of my favorite episodes that we do. It's called through the cracks. And this is where we highlight five apiece movies from 2022 that we feel deserved maybe more attention than they got. Yeah, I'm um, particularly excited because I really have no idea what you're going to bring to the table here. You know, I have some idea of a couple of the films that will be in your top 10. But for yeah. this, it's like, it's wide open. Anything goes. Yeah. And I want to make, I, I guess one thing that for me, at least, I always like set up my own ground rules and don't expect you Matt or Frank. any other guest to. But I want to make it like next week when we do our big countdown. We will include a slot for underrated. And that's not what this is for me. Yeah, like the movies that I'm picking are generally well-reviewed movies. They're just very low reviewed. <laughs> they have very <laughs> yeah. few reviews, and they haven't been part of the conversation. Um, they're probably I haven't checked their like watched numbers on Letterboxd, but they're certainly uh, uh, probably I'm sure they're lower than than most. Um, so uh, that's kind of how I approach this. Um, not as underrated, but as just under discussed, maybe. Yeah, I think I did kind of the same. I, I have four movies on here that definitely it didn't hit the uh, rate of conversation that I would have hoped they would. One that did, but only very briefly, and which I think got too quickly passed over. Okay. Uh, well, I think you're going to start. I am counting down. So, like, I do have these ranked. It's not really that mm-hmm. important, but I, I did rank mine, but that's not necessary. It's not uh, part of the rules. Um, so why don't you start with, I guess, because I, that's the reason I said that I was going to say, why don't we start with your number five? But I don't know if you ranked yours. I, I didn't, but now, now I like subconsciously am. So I, I think I'll just give it my best shot and hope I'll stand by it all tomorrow and not regret everything in my life. Um <laughs> So for number five, I think I'll go with a movie that I don't think you are that wild about, but that's fine. Uh, Lena Dunham's Sharp Stick. Um, Lena Dunham was more widely praised and rightly, I'd say, for Catherine called Birdie, which is all around a better film and uh, more accessible, funnier, easier to watch, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Sharp Stick is much more what you would expect Lena Dunham to make a film like. Um, it's about a young woman who um, is a little bit sheltered and kind of like uh, very insulated, who is making her living-ish as a babysitter, but she's in her 20s. She lives with, still lives with her mom, a very welcome Jennifer Jason Lee, as always. Always happy to see her in a movie. Um, yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, I can't remember like the circumstances in which this eventually happens, but she uh, has sex with the married man uh, for whom she babysits. Um, they had been kind of striking up a rapport. 
over the months. Um, he's kind of like a stay-at-home dad, um, while his wife, uh, played by Lena Dunham, um, has been kind of the breadwinner for the family. And he's, you know, a bit of a slacker, a bit of a doof, but um, very personable, very charming. And so they uh, begin to have an affair and that kind of awakens her whole sexuality. Uh, the arc of the film from there, while certainly not being the kind of thing you would want to like take your parents to necessarily, is overall <laughs> fairly accessible. And it kind of hits a general three-act structure. It's just that the nature of those acts gets increasingly uncomfortable as she continues to experiment, um, sexually speaking. Um, but I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Leonard Dunham's girls. Um, I think it's one of the best shows of this century and, um, really was undervalued culturally because of the kind of the nature of the show that it was. Um, and I've felt a lot of the same sensibility here, particularly in the scenes where Lena Dunham performs. Um, she has two of the most, the strangest, most nuanced scenes I think I've seen in a movie this year where there's like definite sources of tension in one. Um, she's like trying to get a Tupperware to work and it's just not quite working, but it becomes like her outlet for all the other stressors in her life. Uh, the other is kind of more overtly a dramatic confrontation, but which is kind of uh, textured by her going into labor, I believe. Um uh -huh. And th just the writing of those scenes is so sharp and so carefully observed and so natural in a kind of like a heightened way. Um, and I think reflects well for the film as a whole, even if the rest of the film isn't quite as sharp all the time. Um, but I just found it a welcomely uncomfortable viewing experience, which we are in uh, dire need of more and more in this increasingly sanitized uh, cinematic landscape. And it's shot by Ashley Connor, who shot like Madeline's Madeline and a bunch of other. Um... Oh, shit. No, I can't remember the director who made Madeline's Madeline. What the hell is her name? Uh, um, Ju Julia. No. What is her name? Yeah. Right. Um, anyway, uh, the woman who made Madeline's Madeline uh, shot a couple other her films. Um, Butter on the Latch. I know. I'm looking <laughs> it up right now as I Josephine Dr Decker. Um she shot like those films and uh, Death of Dick Long and Person to Person has a great kind of track record in these kind of indie spheres. Wow, making. yeah, that's a good. You just I made know. like a bunch of really good movies. And yeah, so she's getting to be like somebody I'll like watch a movie for. One because her work's always so great, but two, she seems to pick projects that I seem to really dig. Um, and she really develops like a distinct kind of aesthetic for those kind of films. You know, I've railed many times against the like digital lockdown safe aesthetic of much of indie cinema these days it's like designed to go straight to streaming she still makes them look like movies and they don't like they don't necessarily belong on tv um so yeah i was just really uh delighted to sit there and watch the movie and uh delighted to see once again that semi-mainstream american independent cinema can still produce something uncomfortable and uh disarming yeah, it definitely was un uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I agree with that. I mean, and, and often that's something that I um, that I like uh, as well. I found the uh, the naivete of the main character uh, tested my suspension of disbelief. I think mm, I could see that. Um, I, I I think that was like kind of the biggest hurdle that I had. But yeah, you mentioned. Uh, 
leader on him. John Bernthal is the, I can't remember if you said his name, but he plays the, the dad she has yeah. an affair with. And then you mentioned Jennifer Jason Lee and then uh, Taylor page is her um, sort of adopted sister. Right. Um, and she's always fantastic in everything. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's definitely a lot to like about this, this movie, but I, I couldn't like, I, <sighs> I couldn't land on a way to feel about the main character that wasn't, uh, I don't know, judgmental or didn't take me out of the, out of the movie or whatever, quote unquote. Yeah. So uh, you're just, uh, repeating the same talking points. We were always leveling at girls and that's, uh, exactly what I liked about it. <laughs> that's willing to like invite a character who can, who people might judge, I suppose. But that's, it's the thing is, I want to make clear. It's not that I, I was judging the main character in Sharp Stick. It's that I didn't believe her. Okay. Like it, it didn't seem like a real person to me. Gotcha. Um, and I don't mean that a person in a movie has to behave the way people in real life behave. I just mean the character, the, the construction of the character didn't fit for me. So I could never make it work. Uh, anyway. Hey, fair enough. Feel like I'm having doing a bad job of putting that into words. So no, I'm, I uh, my number five on my list is definitely the the least actual under the radar movie, just by virtue of being a Netflix movie. It's you can watch it on Netflix. It was made well, for Netflix. It's gonna fall under the radar these days. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's easy to fall through the cracks. Um, although I guess that you know Netflix has its algorithm. The movie was definitely like showing up on my like top page when it, when it oh, was out. All right. Uh, but that's probably not true of everyone. Uh, it's, it's Elvis Mitchell's documentary. Is that black enough for you? Still need to see uh, this question mark, exclamation point, question mark. <laughs> um, and this is a, a documentary about, uh, black American cinema, but it focuses almost entirely. Like it definitely has a little bit of like, mentioning Oscar Michaud and the earlier stuff and, and, and stuff since then, but it really focuses on the like sort of sixties and seventies explosion of like black exploitation and, and stuff like that. That's really its main focus. And like, it kind of goes off and spokes from there. Uh, and that's a big part of why I liked it is that it doesn't feel like um, a survey, like someone sit, sat down and mapped out like, um, uh, the best way this isn't doesn't feel like you're taking a course in this mm. it feels very personal to elvis mitchell and it feels almost stream of consciousness not quite but it feels like he is following his own train of thought and so you jump from movie to movie it's not it there, there's a loose chronology like it, it goes loosely chronological but like it also just jumps around and forwards and backwards and revisits movies as his train of thought sort of uh encompasses other things and we'll jump forward to you know from uh um, there's a like a really interesting uh 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 moment in the movie where you're seeing like i think it's superfly i can't remember which movie i think it's superfly and you're seeing some of superfly's flies like one-liners and then it jumps to 1991 or 292 or whatever reservoir dogs and um, Harvey Keitel in the opening scene saying, if you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. <laughs> um, and like how that, like Quentin Tarantino is like taking the, the rhythms and dialogue of like 
uh, black exploitation movies and, and putting it in the mouths of like a white character, like I, Harvey Keitel. And um, uh, so it's not meant to, you know, there's like, there's a movie that I like enjoyed. This is going back over 15 years. There was a documentary called uh, Metal, A Headbanger's Journey, but that is really like, metal it's like a beginner's guide to the history of heavy metal it's just like a, an overall survey 101 uh like i feel like if you didn't know anything about metal you could watch that movie and be like okay i am now like baseline conversant in the topic of heavy metal that's not what is this black enough for you is supposed to be this still feels like a personal mm. a personal film essay and it feels like very elvis mitchell um if you like elvis mitchell's voice which i do um Back when I used to listen to podcasts a lot, I used to really like the treatment um, because I, I like listening to him 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 talk. Uh, and uh, 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 that's obviously he talks, he narrates the whole thing. So the yeah, the easy comparison here would be something like Los Angeles plays itself. Um, don't worry, this isn't three hours long, but it is over two hours. It is it is like weighty. Hmm. Um, uh but unlike los angeles plays itself he didn't hire a narrator he does narrate it himself uh, and it's in his voice and um and occasionally uh funny and occasionally maybe he makes some statements that are like that that's a jump or whatever but it doesn't feel like wrong if you were if you were doing that in something that was designed to be like a teaching tool it would be like weird for him to make these out of left field sort of like proclamations but this is that's not what this is this is a personal essay uh and uh but on top of on the other hand as a survey of black exploitation cinema it gave me a whole list of movies i haven't seen that i'm like i gotta go see i gotta check these these things out so uh yeah and I mean, like i said two hours plus but it it flew by for me um and it seems like the kind of movie much like how I have repeatedly returned to Los Angeles plays itself. The longer I've lived in Los Angeles and the more of the movies that I've seen, it continues to reward me. I can see myself going back and watching this again, like maybe in the future when I know a little bit more about black exploitation and like, sure. and, and, and the, the, his points of view might uh, uh, be more enriching or, or I might unlock something else. So uh, yeah, this is a very pleasant surprise for me. Yeah, I, I still really want to see it, mostly just because I'm a big fan of Ellis Mitchell and have always loved his writing and his, especially the podcast, which, um, you know, the treatment is like, could be the easiest, most baseline interview show. It's a half hour public access show that they would just have on, like, whoever was making a movie that week kind of thing. But he would always ask, like, the strangest questions. <laughs> and you could tell often that, like... Yeah the people yeah. he was interviewing would be caught off guard because they'd be in like junket mode or whatever and expect the same like routine questions. But he would ask some very like deep thing about like their personal history or about cinema history. And they'd be like, Oh, I, um, that's very interesting. And it'd take them a second to kind of like reconfigure their whole approach to yeah. the conversation. Um, You're actually reminding me of, a um, that he's not still doing the treatment, is he right? That's I was, I, th I feel like I just looked it up recently. I think he is, but I think the format's okay. changed a lot since okay. uh, the time you and I are really referencing. Well, yeah, I remember this is the time I was referencing 2010. I remember he was interviewing Lee Unkrich, the director of Toy Story 3, about <laughs> Toy Story 3, which he really liked. Yeah. But he kept, in a way that you or I wouldn't blink at, Elvis Mitchell kept referring to the movie as a melodrama, not meaning it as <laughs> yeah, of course. an insult. And Lee Unkrich was like thrown off guard because like 
he was like, I only know the word melodrama as like a pejorative. Um, and that turned into a whole like a conversation about what melodrama is. Uh, yeah, that was one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, it looks it, so it's now an hour long show and um, has multiple segments that do still seem fairly interview based. I need to get back into uh, watching the treatment or listening to the treatment. Um, he did a, um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. And I, I never saw it because I'd never had uh, epics, I think. Um, but he did a series um, for epics that I now I can't remember the name. Elvis Goes There. Oh, okay. I don't remember this. It only lasted like four episodes, but it was basically like um, uh, with each episode, he would find it. It would be him and a director and they would go to places in the world that like were special to that director. So I'm like looking Mm. up the the four episodes they produced uh, the four directors. This is a real weird grab back. Uh, (laughs) All Feig, Ryan Coogler, Sofia Coppola and Guillermo del Toro. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I really wanted to see that because I love that idea. Yeah, for sure. I've I've always been like you long time listeners know whenever we have a guest on for the first time, I always want to know where they were born and where they grew up. I always want to know how places shape a person and uh, Elvis goes there sounds up my alley, but I was this need to watch it. Yeah. It was on um, Epics. So I wonder if, cause Epics is now MGM plus. And there's going to be a, I was just reading, there's going to be like a stars MGM plus like package. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So I wonder if Elvis goes there will be on that or it maybe is already on MGM plus. Anyway, we're, we're off topic. Oh, sure. All right. Uh, my number four, let's go with the mainstream pick of the bunch um, movie that uh, was definitely talked about a lot. The weekend it came out and then immediately not talked about, which is uh, Nicholas Stoller and Billy Eichner's Bros. Um, Bros is now most famous for kind of flaming out at the box office. No pun intended, I suppose. I didn't really mean to phrase that way. <laughs> I didn't even um, think about that. Yeah. Uh, but, and a lot, there was a lot of discussion around why that happened. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, Billy Eichner was quick to uh, blame straight people for not going out and seeing it. Probably true. Um, I think the more compelling point is that like Billy Eichner isn't a movie star and they weren't even trying to sell the idea of there being a star of the movie on the poster, which was just like two anonymous guys grabbing each other's butts. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, the film itself is, uh, remarkably and admirably gay. It's not like the safe liberal gay of just like, these are two nice people in, I'm not making fun of how you're currently dressed, but in sweaters and collared shirts. Um, <laughs> Uh, this is a sweatshirt. I'm in casual mood. Okay. Whoa. David, David's taking it easy right now. Yeah. Um, it is very much about, uh, a certain strain of, uh, gay dating that's based around, uh, very casual hookups. There's a lot of, uh, nuanced dissection of grinder culture. Uh, there's a lot of dissection of the dynamics of group sex. Um, and the notion that, millions of Americans were going to turn out to see uh, 
a mainstream comedy that also features several gay orgies was always going to be a, a big sell. And like, again, that doesn't have a star in it or anyone, anyone who would recognize. Um, that was never going to be a huge recipe for success. Uh, that said, I'm super glad they made the movie that way because it's so strikingly different from a lot of how gay culture is treated in mainstream culture. It's um, also just super, super funny. Um, it's one of the few movies, certainly one of the few mainstream movies that had me laughing out loud several times during the course of it. It was a blast to see with an opening weekend audience. Um, and Billy Eichner is just a really funny, interesting star for a movie. Um, I never, I didn't watch much of Difficult People. I think you watched most of that, right? Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've always liked Eichner from his work on various sitcoms. Parks and Rec comes to mind most often. And some segments of Billy on the Street, those that at least weren't too confrontational. I get uncomfortable when people run up to people on the street. Um, I'm like, I don't want any part of this. Um, but uh, yeah, I have a similar thing. Like celebrities would be fun. I've never watched, or I've tried to watch Nathan for you and I haven't watched the rehearsal because like, it makes yeah. me so uncomfortable. No interest. But, uh, but yeah, I came, I came to difficult people as a Julie Klausner fan and became sure. a Billy Eichner fan sort of from that. Yeah. And bros has some of the, like, you have to be very steeped in like pop culture and the yeah. way that online communities dissect pop culture um, in order to appreciate some of the humor in it. But, um, and I, I also just really liked that it was a romantic comedy that wasn't afraid to make its characters deeply unlikable a lot of the time. Like I liked marry me. Okay. But people were kind of talking that up as like the return of the romantic comedy, but marry me very much does that thing of like late two thousands romantic comedies where nobody's really at fault for anything ever. It's just like random misunderstandings that uh, yeah. nobody oh. really tries to explain that causes the drama. Yeah. Um, that is a pet peeve. Yeah. Bros is like aggressively he, Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane who plays his love interest. They're constantly making mistakes around each other and constantly like, causing issues that happen all the time in normal couples and which are the basis for most romantic comedies. And it was also just really refreshing to have that get embraced again, that the romantic comedy can be a great vestige for fairly unlikable characters. I mean, this was like the basis going back to like, it happened one night or the awful truth, you know, this is very much what romantic comedies are all about. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a movie that's really stuck with me and which I, I do hope more people see because it's really, really well done. Uh, all right. Um, number four for me is another documentary. Annie Ernaux's The Super Eight Years. Um, Annie Ernaux is mostly a novelist. Uh, in fact, weird like coincidence for 2022 movies. Her 2000 novel, L'Evenement, was adapted and released this year as Happening, a movie that you love. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's not what this is about. Uh, yeah. The Super Eight Years is specifically about a period in her family's life from, I had to look it up just now. I don't think I have this great a memory. Uh, it was 1972 to 1981. And uh, she um, would take her Super 8 camera, the family would take a Super 8 camera on their vacations. Um, and this is a time when things were going well in their life. And um, they were a happy family. Um but the images don't have any sound. There were silent uh, images and the movie is right. entirely of them. Uh, and then her voice. Um, and what she's talking about is what's going on behind the images and, and um, what, what else is it 
reminded like uh i mentioned on the movie journal with tyler that i saw i saw fire of love a second time this time with um the director the q a with the director afterwards and she talked about how the crafts the, the couple in that movie they have all this footage but they only ever filmed while they were working so that's kind of she, she was talking about why she ended up having narration and like reading sure. uh katya crafts uh Katya or not, I think it's Katya Kraft's, um like letters and stuff was to like fill in some more of their uh, of their life. So um, uh, the Super Eight Years is similar in that the only footage is of this family like on vacation at the beach, having fun, visiting tourist destinations, um, and things are going are going well. But you see through, you hear through, and you're now talking about it um that there's an end to this period that mm -hmm. the uh it's she talks about it, it's it wasn't a conscious decision but she kind of stopped using the super 8 camera at the same time that she and her husband got divorced in the early 80s mm. and so this it becomes more and more like uh uh, uh cognitively dissonant as you're you are continuing to see a family have a good time together as things are leading up toward the family sort of like falling apart and, right. and, and the, the footage just stops at that point. Um, it's really, uh, um, sad, but it's also, uh, a testament to the fact that, um, I don't know. We want to call it like, uh, consumer, filmmaking or home movie filmmaking um uh these more sort of like accidental less planned out images still have a lot to to offer us and and that is uh it is still a kind of filmmaking and often isn't thought of as that until maybe it's re uh appropriated and and, and reconfigured into something like like this um but yeah i remember i used to go back when my old old employee used to pay for me to go and i've talked about in the podcast before we used to do episodes about it to the uh annual association moving association moving image archivists uh i don't know what you ca call it uh not quite a conference uh summit or something uh called the real thing r-e-e-l and uh a lot of this is about the archivists a lot of this is about preservation and i remember one year they're seeing a whole presentation about the importance of preserving people's home movies. Yeah. Totally. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, super eight years is a, uh, a, a great, you know, you're there's, it's a, it's a joke that goes back decades. The idea of like the most boring thing in the world is watching someone else's vacation footage or whatever, but the super eight years, uh, challenges that. <laughs> Well, it's all on how you present it, right? I'm sure yeah. uh, I've already forgotten her name, but I'm sure she's a little bit more poetic in how she reflects yeah. on it. Well, than she's like, a writer, yeah. Than like, oh, you're about to see her take a spill, you know, or <laughs> however your uncle would be narrating their movies or whatever. Um, the uh, Super Eight Years is also, as I'm seeing, uh, about an hour long, which is very encouraging. And, yeah, you uh, you gotta see, you gotta love that. Yeah, yeah it's on uh, Canopy right now, so I, I may uh, try to squeeze that in the next week or so. All right. All right. Number three. Um, let's see. Number three, I think, will fall to... 
to Matu Almerik's Hold Me Tight. Um, oh, I missed this. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's a tough movie to totally embrace because it's um, tough to really comprehend what he's going for at any given moment. It is generally about uh, a woman who has left her family and we are gradually piecing together the reasons why is both told non-chronologically and also as i learned in the q a after the film and as most of the audience seem to learn the q a after the film uh partially like an imagined set of circumstances where like not everything in the movie is literally happening it's partially uh the main characters uh played by vicky creeps her like um fantasies and dreams and stuff like that Again, this is not very clearly demarcated in the film. And um, there's a sense that w- in which uh, in the Q&A after Matteo Marie seemed surprised that people weren't picking up on this and that caused some honest antagonism, which I always enjoy in a <laughs> Q&A session. I, always, yeah. I know you don't, this is like your nightmare Q&A session is the audience being antagonistic towards the subjects, but uh, that's what I'm there for. Um, but, yeah, well, yeah, I, I also like the... Um audience being antagonistic toward one another oh sure um i uh was at a screening of holy spider with a uh, i think i told you this story but yeah. the, for the listeners a, a screen with uh of holy spider and afterwards um an argument broke out because one guy was trying to compare the because holy spider is based on a real thing about a guy who was like murdering prostitutes in iran and a guy tried to compare it to the attack on paul pelosi because that had like just right. happened and someone else, a woman who is of Iranian descent, was taking an issue with that. And they started yelling back and forth at each other. And then I later at the reception after the Q&A found out that woman who was yelling was Anna Lily Amarpour. You love to see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I love living in Los Angeles. I will never leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, aside from any narrative confusion and hold me tight the minute to minute experience of watching it is very enrapturing um it's beautifully shot i forgot to note the cinematographer but um Matu Amarik has a nice sense of how to assemble a film i've only seen one other film of his i think it was called the blue room and it had a similar sense of like disjointedness and that he's a little more sure of the structure than maybe he's conveying but um is driven very much by performance and here like at this point i'll pretty much see anything vicky creeps is in um i'm constantly enthralled by her presence and the strange sorts of decisions she makes throughout the course of her work um and as the film kind of gradually unpacks uh the distance between her character and uh her husband and children um it, it becomes very clearly affecting and that part kind of comes into greater clarity but um seeing her just kind of like go around and try to rediscover a sense of herself she's a very open vulnerable actress who can convey certain depths that we don't need to necessarily put a finger on while still appreciating the emotional effect of them um so yeah uh, i was actually while you were talking about something rather i was looking at some letterbox stats i was curious <laughs> i was curious about your uh notion of how many much of these have been watched this is the least viewed by far of the films that i'll be discussing but i do hope Mm -hmm. that uh, people give it a shot and stick with its um sort of strange amorphous structure um it's well worth well worth seeing um the cinematographer by the way is named christophe bocarn okay and he's done a ton of stuff that's kind of like um 
like middlebrow French movies. Oh, interesting. You know? Um uh including he's worked twice with Benoit Jaco in recent years. Unfortunately, it's two Benoit Jaco movies I don't like. You like Susanna Andler, right? Loved it. Um I don't know if you saw Casanova Casanova Last Love. <laughs> it's um, constantly teasing me as an unfinished movie on my Amazon list because I, yeah. I watched most of it. I and I probably only got like 20 minutes from the end, but something interrupted me, and every time I'm like, I don't really care to go back. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm a big Benoit Jaco fan, so I'll continue to see his yeah. his stuff. But um, I mean, even a bad Benoit Jaco movie is still interesting, you know. Sure. Um, uh, and Susanna Andler is definitely a very well photographed movie. I like that a lot. Oh yeah. Uh, all right. So let's move on to my number three. Now, this one some might call this kind of a cheat. Perfect. But as I said, as I said last week, my rule this year, and I think for the last couple of years, is to qualify for 2022 consideration for in this 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 period we're in a movie has to have premiered in 2022 and been released in the u.s before we record our top 10 so right. this is a movie that premiered at at sundance 2022 which is a virtual uh festival uh but didn't actually get released in the u.s until earlier this month um the movie is directed by written by and starring clay tatum and the movie is called the civil dead Hmm. Um, so, uh, what caught my eye is that, so Clay Tatum is the star. The other lead actor in this movie is a guy named Whitmer Thomas, who's a, a comedian and a musician. And I'm familiar with, um, his songs. And so when I got like the PR email, like the publicist email, like, do you want to check this out? I was like, Oh, Whitmer Thomas is in a movie. That sounds cool. Um, so I watched it, uh, and it's a very like, you know, low budget LA indie comedy i guess supernatural comedy okay where uh clay tatum the main star the director and writer and star uh is a um a photographer who's um uh sort of not doing great but not he's sort of hanging in there and it's in uh uh financially picking up work where he can um he's looking for inspiration he he goes out to shoot um uh, uh in a park while his wife's out of town and he re- runs into an old friend from his hometown named named wit the char- oh the characters are named clay and wit the actual actors names which makes it easy um he sees wit and he's like oh yeah you moved out here we never hung out i forgot that you moved out here we only eventually i would say the audience catches on before clay does because we know we're watching a movie and we're more primed for supernatural things. Um, <laughs> but eventually we realize that wit is a ghost mm. and he's been dead for an indeterminate amount of time. Ghosts in this reality don't really know time kind of works differently for them. And clay is the first person that's been able, able to see him, whether it's because of their connection from childhood or what we don't know, but clay is the only person who can see him. Um, and, uh, that makes this so the the fact that there's only one person who can see wit makes wit want to spend all his time with clay because otherwise but clay is just a regular guy and wit <laughs> is like not a good friend he's just like a guy he knew from his hometown <laughs> who happened almost also be here and is mostly getting annoyed that this guy is just like always around uh and so I, obviously i mean i'm giving out the whole plot but you can see why there's a lot of comedy in yeah, in, yeah. In, in this 
setup, but it's also, you I mean, talk about movies that are willing to be about uh, unlikable people. Like Clay behaves so selfishly in, 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 in this movie. Um, and he's our protagonist, but uh, it becomes a, a movie about like how people, you know, people need each other. That's, that's that's true like you you can't really survive on your own but the same people don't always need each other right and uh that um you feel bad for wit that clay is like sick of him but also you kind of get it because clay like has other he has a wife he has other stuff going on and his wife can't see wit so he just like seems like a crazy person (laughs) if he's talking to wit um it's a movie about like friendship by circumstance or happenstance not actual friendship and the the you know the the sort of unequal pairing of the two friends makes it kind of a tragic story even though it's it remains funny pretty much throughout um but it's it's uh uh really it's really it's really smart it feels uh very it feels like a very indie uh movie it also has um one of my favorite uh character actors if you know who this guy is robert longstreet do you know him um oh gosh the name sounds very familiar you'd know him if you heard his voice he has a very distinctive yeah. sort of like uh raspy southern voice but uh he was in judas and the black messiah he was like um i think he was jesse plemons boss or jesse plemons co-worker he was like an okay. fbi guy in judas and the black messiah and he has this like thick gravelly voice and and uh yeah he shows up in the movies they like um in the early stages you know kind of like hey i have a friend who has a superpower um wit uh helps clay earn a bunch of money by helping him cheat at poker by just standing behind the guys and so robert longstreet plays this like sleazy hollywood producer who hosts a poker game at his at his house he's great he's fantastic in the movie uh i I don't know I, i i chose to watch this movie on a whim because I'd heard of the second build star and was familiar with his music. And, <laughs> uh, and maybe that just like not knowing anything about it, uh, sure. is, is part of what made it so uh, impactful to me, but I had a great time and I definitely, uh, yeah, like I said, this is a lot of people will consider this a 2023 movie, but, uh, Hey, I'm talking about it now and you can rent it on VOD right now. There you go. So no, it's cool. I'd kind of written the movie off because I really hate cutesy titles that are like <laughs> right, a reference right. to other movies. I'm like, yeah, catch you later. Uh, good luck with that. Uh, but that sounds really good. Uh, yeah. All right. So you're, you're number two then. Yeah. Number two, uh, I'm going with the director whose last name, I afraid of mispronouncing, um, Andrew, Siemens Resurrection. Um, I'm sure it's not pronounced oh. semen, but uh, it's spelled S-E-M-A-N-S. Um, so that's what I got. Simon, who can say? Um, yeah, Resurrection premiered at another Sundance last year premiere. I didn't see it in that uh, environment, but it kind of immediately um, caught my eye because it was tagged as like a psychological horror movie um, in which Rebecca Hall uh, plays a woman who... Um, I can't remember the exact circumstances under which this happens, but eventually like Tim Roth, who we gather was uh, a former lover and we've certainly learned former uh, husband uh, of her um, kind of returns out of the blue and starts just like showing up places. And we can tell by her reaction that there was some deeply traumatic stuff that went down between them. Um, 
And I'm certainly not going to reveal what that deeply traumatic stuff is, only to say that uh, the film takes a strange idea to its logical and horrific conclusion. Um, and obviously at this point, like Rebecca Hall has kind of like made her mark as one of the premier actresses of our time and great at playing a certain kind of unhinged paranoia and anxiety. Um, and certainly for those of us who have some experience suffering from anxiety to various extents, uh, it's one that I've told other anxious people to watch on a strong day because it's very much taps into like just the pure horror of all of your anxious thoughts kind of coming to the fore and coming true. Um, and the lengths to which Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth go to kind of draw this out are really striking and strange and compelling. Um, but which all of, all of which uh, kind of tease at an underlying psychological unease that they're feeling. It's not, um, just strangeness for its own sake. Um, it very much feels born out of a certain psychology. Um, mm. And so it's one that I came into with like fairly high expectations, just kind of given the general tenor of how it's presenting itself and which really, really delivered for me. Um, so yeah, it's tough for me to talk about because I don't want to give too much about it away um, because I do think it's kind of been overlooked and hasn't been as widely seen as it should. Um, but I, I was really, especially for debut feature um it's uh this guy's first movie but um really really good i would have gone with simmons having looked it up sure simmons, simmons i can see that yeah yeah um no i saw this one um i know we're being positive here i wasn't as nuts about it as as you are i felt mm. like um the heaviness of its tone kind of like wore thin on me for a little bit where it's like i get it this is like dark or whatever um yeah there's something like playful about tim roth's approach to it though that like just sets that off enough for me yeah then this is you might remember this might have been this came out in like august right yeah like a summer horror movie this might have been like the last movie journal that tyler and i did together before he went to the hospital Mm. i talked about it and i talked about how i have problems with it but as a showcase for tim roth and rebecca hall two yeah. great actors doing great work and playing off each other. It's worth seeing just for that alone. And of course, uh, Rekha Hall has a, a monologue that is, uh, uh, oh, yeah. quite a, quite a, uh, quite a feat. Um, yeah. it's really just her and she's in her darkened office. And as the camera gets closer, you don't even see the detail behind her just for most of this monologue. It's just like Rebecca Hall's head against a black background telling this horrifying story. Um, that scene was amazing. Definitely. Yeah. There's plenty in this movie to, to recommend and I would definitely recommend seeing it, but not quite on the level of you. Fair enough. Okay. My next movie, my, my number two movie I had to look up, uh, Juan Pablo Gonzalez is the, is the director. The movie is called Dos Estaciones, which for those who don't speak Spanish means two stations. Um, and, uh, this is a movie that, I've seen, because I, th- I think I was looking at what festivals it played and it seems to have, in a couple of places, been sort of slotted under like LGBTQIA plus type of thing. Um, and I feel like that is limiting. Um, uh, but, you know, if that also, if that helps a movie get seen, then um, uh, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, you know? it's a tricky balance. Like Chantal Ackerman, like, refused to let her films ever play like... Uh, gay film festivals basically because she didn't want to be like pigeonholed in that genre. Um, not that it's really a genre, but I guess like in that like ecosystem. 
she wanted to play like mainstream film festivals. Mm. Uh, yeah, Dos Estaciones is about a um, an a small artisanal uh, and generations old tequila manufacturer in um, in Mexico. I, I don't know where, and it's run by the the current head is a woman, a middle aged woman, and she hires a new assistant, a younger woman, a woman in, in her twenties, and. Yeah, so definitely there's this, like, she's clearly into this younger woman, <laughs> but it's like, it's not, it's not predatory and it's not even really the main focus. The main focus is that the movie is surprisingly topical if you follow tequila or, or, <laughs> or, me, or mezcal. The strangest kind of, recommendation, but okay. But it's, it's a serious thing that's actually happening right now that like, um, yeah, it's cool. I, you know, I don't want to name any because for all I know, Casamigos is doing it like the right way. But the fact that there are things like Casamigos, George Clooney owns a tequila company, you know, that oh, sure. like tequila has become fashionable uh, uh, in the U.S. And because of that, bigger tequila makers are edging out smaller, these generations old tequila makers in in Mexico by like just being willing to pay more for agave plants and, and for, and for mm. stuff like that. And so this is a movie that is about a, uh, this heritage tequila manufacturer, of uh, facing potential extinction. Meanwhile, the, and the woman is like, that's mostly what's on her mind. She also like has a crush on her assistant, but that's not really the, the, the main thing. Um, and if you know, my, um, my tastes, uh, and you see this, you'll understand why I love it so much because there's, uh, it definitely would fall. I mean, it's a very short movie. I think it's like not even, Oh, it's 95 minutes. Okay. Um, but it definitely would fall into the category of slow cinema. If we're still talking about mm. slow cinema, it's just a lot of like long shots of, you know, someone sweeping the floor after hours of the tequila factory, or there's a part where the agave plants like are getting tossed onto this, conveyor belt that goes up and dumps them into like a thresher where they get pulped for the tequila. I don't listen to me. I don't know. How the tequila's <laughs> made. I, but um, like the camera rides up the conveyor belt with them and like almost falls into the thresher. It's very cool. Um, uh, there's, there's a, there's a piece and a pastoralness pastorality to um, the, the way the movie is presented that in a vacuum is very beautiful, but because the movie is shot through with this idea of, we don't know if this business, um, this family business that's been around for decades is going to survive. There's a sense of doom to it almost. Sure. Like maybe, maybe this is the quiet before the storm that we're, that we're, you know, we're enjoying hearing the, the, the wildlife and looking at the stars and the clear blue sky at night or the clear sky at night. But, uh, this might all be coming to an end. So there's a, a dread and a, and a sadness to it at the same time. Uh, yeah. To dos estaciones. Right on. Um, my number one is one that I talked about in the movie journal fairly recently, but uh, felt worth spotlighting on the main light episode. That, uh, that, especially since that's on a, the Patreon. Right. Yeah. If you want not, to hear Scott's movie journal, movie journal, Scott's no, but movie I'm saying journal. if you want to hear yeah. Scott's movie journal, patreon.com slash battleship pretension, that's how you do it. Pay up. 
And here's a little tease of what you missed. Um, Chloe Akuna's uh, Watcher, um, which came out, I think it's another summer horror movie. Um, but I only so this is of, your number one, right? Uh, yeah, that's okay. I'm counting. Yeah, okay, just making um, sure we were on the same page. Yeah, totally. Um, but I only caught up with this a couple of weeks ago. Um, and was really impressed with it. I, there's been a ton of good horror movies in 2022, and this I think was probably my favorite of the ones I saw. Um, it's about a young couple who moved to Romania. Uh, he, he got a new job there. And she's just kind of along with the ride. Um, he speaks Romanian. She does not. So she's already kind of entering the world a little isolated. She doesn't, you know, have a job to go to and she doesn't have, really have anyone to talk to. Um, and amidst her isolation and growing insomnia, she glances across the row of their, or really across the street, I suppose, of their apartment building. And in the next building, just keeps seeing this figure standing at the window, seeming to look right at her. Um, unnerving enough but it is a dense city block you know maybe he's just staring at the world and who's to say and she just happened to glance at the wrong time um but then she starts to like see specifics and how he's watching her and sends like little signals to see if he'll flinch or notice or reciprocate and sure enough he is and does um and then as she's walking around her neighborhood starts to see somebody seeming to follow her um and again maybe it's just a, you know it's a european city a lot of people will walk a lot of people take the trains maybe he's just around and doing his grocery shopping but there's something that's just setting her a little off and even though uh her husband and the police and everyone else tell her that you know it's probably just all in her head and everything's all right there's something she just can't quite let go of um the O'Connor wrote the screenplay herself. Weirdly, it has a credit that I don't know if I've seen before, or very rarely seen, where it's based on another screenplay. So somehow she changed it enough in a screenplay by someone named Zach Ford that um, she could. But was that screenplay produced? Seemingly not. Uh, I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, so why wouldn't that just be a story by credit? Um, yeah, now I'm going to look up. There's probably it. some D- D- uh, WGA weirdness. Yeah. I feel like the WGA rules are getting stranger by the minute. Um, Yeah. The the big one, I don't know if I'm sure you know this, you're very uh, tapped in and sort of the listeners, but uh, if, if you're watching a movie and there's a writing credit and there's an ampersand joining two names, that means they worked on the screenplay together. If it's just the word and that means they were said, you know, I don't know, separate drafts or, or they, uh, they did not work together one was revising the other perhaps but uh, i don't know I, I think people probably know that but in case you don't that's a uh, good thing to know yeah so he, the this guy zach ford he has three other writing credits two of which have synopsis on imdb that are very much not this not watcher at all and then one of which doesn't and so i'm like it could be um but anyway uh thought it worth noting even though you know theoretically there's enough different about it to warrant um it's on credit um okay i found a synopsis of it It has nothing to do with it so i really have no idea where this credit came from um yeah michael monroe plays uh the main woman and a lot of her scenes are just based around the way she's watching her surroundings the way she's feeling about being stuck in these conversations with other people speaking a language she doesn't understand you know her husband will have 
people over from the office and they'll mostly try to speak English, but eventually slip into Romanian, leaving her isolated. And so there's all these like kind of like little calling them even microaggressions would be too strong, even though, you know, by the time it gets like her husband doubting or her uh, paranoia around this guy watching her, it does become a little bit more aggressive. But some of it is just like random micro circumstances that add up to a feeling of isolation and set it off enough that you're like, okay, can we really trust her perspective? Can we trust our own perspective on how we're seeing this? Or are we just too locked into the sense of isolation to really know, understand what's going on? Um, and the tension just builds and builds and builds really patiently without it being, you know, full on slow cinema stuff. It's very much an active mainstream thriller that anyone can sit down and enjoy. Um, well, enjoy maybe depending on the audience, <laughs> but um becomes really tense and thrilling. Uh, Bern Gor- Gorman, who uh, you told me you've seen a bunch of stuff, and I've probably seen a yeah. bunch of stuff, um, plays the titular watcher um, and is effectively the kind of guy that you would suspect would be following a young woman around. Um, he uh, plays enough into the potential that he's just a regular guy who's just being misunderstood while having a certain kind of presence that is uneasy to be around and which is heightened through Okondo's direction and the editing and cinematography, which um, do a really good job of kind of like, well, keeping the pace and while also drawing out the tension of given scenes. And then in the cinematography, just isolating uh, Micah Moreno's character into um, kind of smaller and smaller spheres of her uh, comfortable existence. Um, so yeah, it, it's the kind of thing that's set up that it could be a very obvious and very pandering kind of uh, story, um, but which really invests in the not knowing. And because the not knowing is really the scariest part. And so, um, whereas I think a lot of these stories could just really shift into high gear and right away be about how we all doubt women and don't give their perspectives enough credence. Um, it introduces enough self-doubt in the character that keeps it being like an active interior drama on top of the exterior tension that's uh, keeps being ramped up. Um, so yeah, really, really like this movie and very excited um, to see whatever Chloe Kuna does next. Uh, yeah. We did talk about Bern Gorman and how much I like him on the uh, patreon.com slash battle for pretension. But uh, if you don't know who that is, probably his most high profile role is in the dark Knight rises where he's like one of the like bad gotham business guys who foolishly thinks they can like work with bane i don't know if you've heard of that a yeah. classic role <laughs> yeah <laughs> he gets like choked by bane or something i can't remember exactly i saw that movie oh, twice i didn't like it either time why um, twice i think so that was 2012 right yeah that was the first year so i saw it when it came out at the noho seven but that was the first year that i got invited to like award screening sure and so i think just the novelty of it i was like hell yeah i'll go see like this movie hasn't been in theaters for four or five months yeah, yeah i'll go to a city walk and watch it again for <laughs> free why not um, uh yeah yeah i now saw that, that opening weekend at an imax and that was about the only circumstances that could make it bearable because the imax shit is oh yeah cool. now that you mention it i think that was an, another thing they were showing it at the imax at city walk and I had seen, like I said, I had seen it in a hotel, yeah. which is not IMAX. So I do think that might've been part of the draw was like, that's oh, a worthy draw. IMAX. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've definitely done that before gone to see something else. Cause like, you know, uh, the award screening 
of Dunkirk on the Warner Brothers lot is 70 millimeter. Yeah. First and only time I've been in the big like Warner Brothers theater. I still haven't. Yeah, that's the only the only thing I've seen there is the 70 millimeter Dunkirk. Um which is great. Best Nolan movie, right? It's up there for me for sure. Yeah. yeah. I still think uh, having recently rewatched Memento, that's probably still gonna okay. stick in my number one. But um Dunkirk, because it's like not like his usual, like, you know, twisty, turny, tricky kind of movie. I always forget about it, but I'm like, oh yeah, Dunkirk freaking rocks. But it also does have that timey wimey thing because timey wimey yeah it it has a conceit for sure a structural conceit but it's not like it's not like you find out at the end of the movie that something someone did in one timeline like changed the nature of the other guy's timeline because we're just experiencing them in different trajectories um which is i feel like what a younger nolan might have done um all right so we're on to my number one which having just glanced at my letterbox i see that you have seen and gave a heart heart to um the director's name is Saim Sadiq, and the movie is called Joyland. Oh, yeah. I forgot that it came uh, out properly uh, last year, did it? Oh, shit. Did it not? <laughs> I kind of feel like it might not have. Let's see. Uh, well, shit, then maybe it doesn't qualify, but it's too late because I've already... Uh, you sunk uh, in. Put it on, yeah. Um, Who distributed this movie? Let's see. But I guess I was thinking because... Like it's nominated for the independent spirit for foreign language film. So I kind of, yeah, I don't know like, how their shit works. They have the weirdest. So maybe that's another uh, carve out. I can say like, if it's nominated for a major award, it yeah. counts. Um, carve out exceptions until you just give in. Yeah. That of course IMDb used to be like easy to use. Now it's okay. Has it come out in the U S Played AFI Fest. Is that where you saw it? That's where I saw it. And it was in the um, spotlight section at Sundance. Nope. It's in the coming soon section at Oscilloscope's website. Yeah. It doesn't even seem to have a release date in the US yet. It does not. Oh, wait. Um, April. Oh, so just missed my cutoff. Uh, Just missed my cutoff. But um, oh, well. I'm counting it anyway. All right. Same Sadiq's Joyland, which is another movie that I feel like has kind of the LGBTQ hook, but is about something much more than that. It's, um, uh, it's about a multi-generational family in, uh, Lahore, Pakistan. Is that, I don't know if you say Lahore or Lahore. I can't, I don't know how you say it. I can't even remember Um, which place it was. Well, I just saw it a couple weeks ago. So, um, uh, so they all live in one. There's a, the elderly, like patriarch who's, who's like wheelchair bound. And then there's the older son who, his wife and their two daughters, but three by the end of the movie, because she gives birth again, uh, actually pretty early on, right? Is that's like almost the opening scene is her water breaks. Um, yeah. As I remember. And then there's the younger son and his wife who don't have any children who both work. And we very much get the impression they're like a little bit more modern and they're thinking a little bit more progressive, but yeah. not necessarily on the same page as far as how progressive they are willing to be in front of the rest of the family. Uh, he's very, uh given to like acquiescing to his family uh whereas she's more outspoken um and part of that comes from his shame because she uh, uh yeah i said they both work but that doesn't happen yet at the beginning he's not working he's staying home basically with the two young daughters yeah 
And then he gets a job. His friend sets him up, even though he has no dancing experience, his friend sets him up with a job as a backup dancer in uh, what they refer to as an erotic uh, theater. Um, I would say the, the bar for what's considered erotic, maybe in public Pakistani life is different than what I would think of. It's it's like barely even burlesque, but it is like, uh, you know, women in, uh, bikini type, uh, clothes. But the, the act that he's working for is a trans woman and she's like low woman on the totem pole, uh, in the literally her uh, act is during the intermission when people are getting up, take a smoke break. Yeah. Um, but this, this guy who is like, you can see why someone would say like, Hey, let's get this guy a job as a backup dancer. He's a very handsome fit guy, but he's also like insecure and, and shy. Uh, but he very quickly develops a big crush and then maybe more on the dancer, the trans, the trans woman. And I, I meant to look up her name because she is fantastic in the movie. Um, I just had it up. Her name her. is Alina yeah. Khan. Okay. Alina Khan. Yeah. She's, fantastic so that's kind of the hook it's it's like oh this married guy um having an affair with his boss who happens to be a trans woman um but really it as the movie goes on and a lot of the early part is about that you know um but as the movie goes on it becomes more a broader broader portrait of this family of a sad family um you know no one in this family is fully getting what they want maybe the closest is the older son, but he's frustrated every turn by his younger brother or, you know, his, um, and, and his wife or, or the, or the father, it's a, um, it, it becomes a tragic movie as it, as it goes on. Uh, but it, uh, so I don't want to give much, well, I'm not going to spend too much time, more time on the story. Uh, what I will talk about is the often inventive imagery, um, of of the movie there's a an early plot point about a large very large cardboard cutout of this trans uh trans dancer oh, yeah. that he I forgot about that <laughs> um he's supposed to store in the theater but the theater locks up before he's able to so he has to yeah. take it home so there's a <laughs> shot and this was actually i didn't know what it was from at the time but at sundance in the like the opening like uh oh sure bumper when there's a bunch of shots this shot of him riding his motorcycle home with this standy, which I'm, I want to give people the, it's got to be like 20 feet tall. I That's what know. I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. 15 to 20 feet tall. It's like balancing his bike and he is looking at the road through her legs <laughs> and driving down the road while this like uh carbo cut of this, of this woman is standing like that shot was in the Sundance bumper. And it wasn't until I saw the movie that I was like, Oh, that's what that's from. Um, but, uh, uh, so there's something like, there's like that. And then they end up their way of, hiding the thing is to throw of just a big cloth put it on the roof and throw a big sheet over yeah. it. so in the next morning you get like the sunrise over this like clearly giant woman with a sheet <laughs> over it um but then the um the the main guy the younger brother and the and the and the dance and the trans woman uh their first kiss is also this beautiful shot where it's in her bedroom and she's got these like this lighting thing that is like the green lasers that make different shapes and like it 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 feels accidental but almost it's so beautiful that it almost couldn't be that as they kiss the uh 
the lasers form a star across their two faces, you know, like mm. one half on his face, one half on her face. It's, uh, so gorgeous. And, um, uh, the movie's not, it doesn't feel like, like I mentioned it, it so much, so many of these things feel accidental, but in, re- in retrospect couldn't be because there's right. just too much beauty. Um, uh, and all of that beauty, I think the tragedy, one of the tragedies of the movie is that um, all so much of the beauty that, that these characters encounter is being stifled by a rigidly traditionalist family who uh, re- refuses to acknowledge or give any credence or weight to any way of living other than the one that they have decided is the right way their family's way yeah um there becomes no way out of this family yeah uh, uh, and i should go ahead no i was just gonna spotlight two things you didn't mention but you were about to finish up your thoughts so you might have very well have mentioned them well i i mentioned the the uh i forgot her name um uh, Alden Nikon. yeah but the um the younger brother's wife is also especially as when becomes uh, goes along becomes a uh, uh, a bigger and bigger part of the movie and her name is rashti farouk i think yeah that was yeah. one of the big things i was going to mention because i thought she was amazing yeah and this was apparently her first feature film i think she's like a theater actress and she's done some shorts okay. and stuff but um i think she's the strongest performance of the film by a good mile um because yeah it, it takes you know i i think like the trap sometimes that these kind of movies can fall into is it's all about you know the guy living his truth and finding his identity and all that, all of it, which is like very valuable, but it does acknowledge that like he is kind of, he's definitely cheating on his wife and in a sense, isolating her. And so it takes seriously the isolation he's putting her through the same way any marital drama should, where if someone's you know, cheating on the other. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Some of the, some of the saddest moments in 2022 cinema uh, that don't involve Barry Keegan uh happened with <laughs> Rashti Farouk in this movie but I don't want to give too many things away yeah I, there's also some that like border on comedy as she's like experiencing this isolation but essentially still living with the rest of her family she like almost can't find the space to be uh depressed about what's going on in her life yeah, um, yeah. and uh also I wanted to note the um probably not the first sex scene between uh, the guy and uh, the trans woman. Um, but, and it's not even a full on sex scene because the whole point is it gets interrupted, but it has, it speaks to a certain uh, sexual dynamic um, that I haven't seen portrayed before in a movie like this, where somebody's uh, just getting into the realm of having sex with somebody other than a woman for the first time. Um, and other without, than a cis woman, other than a cis woman, I should say, yes. Um, uh, and who expects certain things out of that experience that are unfair towards uh, the trans woman. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's a really interesting nuanced dynamic that that film plays out really well. Yeah. Uh, all right. We did it. We, we uh, counted down our through the cracks movies. I broke my own rule accidentally. Perfect. Um, That's what I love to see. <laughs> but uh, forget it. Whatever. Who cares? Um, uh yeah you can hopefully maybe joyland will win the uh independent spirit 
international film. I can't remember what else is. Uh, actually, you know what? One of the nominees will show up on my list next week. Whoa. Uh, so hopefully Joyland doesn't win. It's yeah. Doesn't stand a chance. Yeah. I hope it gets plowed over by uh, another movie. Uh, you can find, I don't know. You can't find reviews of these movies because I don't write reviews anymore. I will someday when things calm down. Um, but uh, you can find me at battleshipretention.com. Email me at david at battleshipretention.com. Follow me on Twitter at DaveyPretension. I'm on Letterboxd at David Backs. Uh, Scott, where can people find you? Uh, Twitter, Rail Tomorrow, Letterboxd. Um, I'm getting better at posting thoughts pretty regularly on the old Boxed. So, uh, although I just noticed that I never actually put in my entry for a Seijun Suzuki movie I saw the other night. I need to do that. Um, but yeah. Well, yeah, I, um, I also try to, but then sometimes you see a movie, um, uh, you see it before the embargo goes up and you can't, I, I don't feel comfortable. Well, that is true. Letterbox thoughts. So I'll tell you now it's, uh, uh you're not going to believe this, but I did not like cocaine bear. Ah, I'm shocked. So it's not, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but, uh, actually by the time you're hearing this, I've already talked about it on a movie journal. So you listeners are. Uh, not surprised at all to hear that because I already said it. All right. Uh, thank you, Scott, for filling in again. Of course. Thank you at home for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.